This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. We are back with another fabulous episode of Jews You Should Know. Once again, is there a Jew you should know in your life that you'd like to nominate for being highlighted and acknowledged on this program? Email jewsyoushouldknow at gmail.com and let us know who that special person is and what we can share about them. Also, as always, dailygiving.org, that incredible, remarkable, charitable aggregator where you give $1 a day and they do the rest. They collect your dollars, compile them into one fund, and now already over $9,500 every single day going to a different worthy cause that's been thoroughly vetted for efficacy and credibility. Dailygiving.org, add your dollar to the mix today. And today we are so privileged to bring you our guest. I'm sure all of my listeners, certainly almost all, have heard of the great and late now Holocaust survivor, journalist, memoirist, Elie Wiesel, one of the heroes of 20th century Jewish people and did so, so much in the world. You may not know, however, that the Wiesels had a only son named Alicia, who is a remarkable figure in his own right. Of course, grew up in the shadow, so to speak, of his father's outstanding life, but he carved out his own niche and has done a tremendous amount himself. He was, for 25 years, a senior executive at Goldman Sachs, rising to the level of chief technology officer, really at the top, top echelon of that global financial institution. He's also been a great advocate on behalf of Israel and the Jewish people, and just done a tremendous array of interesting and, dare I say, inspiring things. So really excited to hear from him today. Meanwhile, a reminder is always to follow us on social media at Jews You Should Know, spelled out fully on Instagram and Facebook, Jews You Should Know with the letter U on Twitter. Hit subscribe or follow wherever you may be listening, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, whichever platform you're listening on right now. Please spread the word to your friends and family. Questions and comments to Jews You Should Know at gmail.com. And now, to our conversation with longtime Goldman Sachs executive, Jewish and Israel advocate, and so much more, Alicia Wiesel. We are here with Alicia Wiesel, who is, I think, a very, very unusual guest for us in the sense that he has fascinating story, both in terms of his origin, being the son of the great Ellie Wiesel, who of course we'll speak about, but also as a person who's done remarkable things in his own life and some very, very interesting initiatives in particular of late. So first of all, how are you, Alicia? Thank God. Thank God. Pleasure to be speaking to you today. Wonderful. We could finally connect. It's taken us a while, as is generally the case with busy people, but uh, that's that's all for the best. And I want to start off by, I normally ask people where they've come from and what their background is, and, and I want to do that with you as well. But kind of the elephant in the room, of course, is that you were the son, are the son of the most famous and celebrated Holocaust survivor probably in the world, an incredibly noted author and lecturer and, you know, a worldwide figure. And obviously that colors the upbringing in the background. And I want to understand a little bit about your personal story, but in the context of where you came from, from that larger family conversation. Tell us a little bit about where you're from and, and how you grew up and what that was like. 
Listen, my father was a great dad. He, uh, you know, I have great early memories of him. He was a very engaged dad. He was just a great guy. You know, the thing about my dad is there's all of his writings. So people who want to know about him have this incredible ability to read his works. He left behind such a rich collection of his thoughts and words, his lectures that we're now putting online with the 92nd Street Y, his many books that he's written, his speeches. So if you want to know what my father thought about something, it's, it's possible to find out. One can see, you know, for oneself. The thing I feel most people don't really know about my father that you would only know if you got to spend considerable amounts of time with him is the Torah Shab al if you will, the, the, you know, the oral Torah, um, which is what an incredible mensch he was. He would listen to anybody's story who wanted to share it. He would receive, you know, 30, 40 people after a lecture. And even if I was tugging on him because I wanted to go home or my mom was tugging on him because she was ready to go home, he would sit there and he would talk to every person who wanted to engage with him and say, you know what, we are third cousins four times removed, uh, you know, from somewhere in Eastern Europe. And he would make the time to listen and inquire about them and hear their story. He didn't care if it was a uh, Bangladeshi taxi driver or the guy cutting his hair uh, or the person next to him in line at the post office. He was always open to hearing people's stories. And that's, I think, the thing that sticks with me the most about who my father was. So just for those who haven't read his works, which I can't imagine there's too many, but just give a, a brief overview of what the family history was and, and kind of where you had been from as a as a broader family, most recently before the war, and then take us to where you ended up and, and where you were born. Sure. So my father grew up in Siget, uh, now in Romania. It went back and forth between Romania and Hungary during World War II. It's a town right on the border of the Ukraine, just on the southern side of the Tisa River. And my father had a, a you know a Hasidish lifestyle. His his parents were somewhere between. I'm not going to say cosmopolitan because this is Siget. There were 10,000 Jews, but you know, somewhat, you know, somewhat middle class. They they owned a, a corner grocery store. My grandfather, Shlomo, after whom I'm named, was very active in communal affairs. He was always getting Jews who had been imprisoned out of jail, and um, and then my grandmother, Sarah, came from a more Hasidish family. You know, more more classic. His my father's grandfather, Dodja Feig, was was a farmer and would love sharing Hasidic stories with my father. I'm sure taught him how to milk a cow, many things like that. And uh, so my father had a lovely life. He was in choir. He was in cheder. He was trying to learn Kabbalah when my grandfather didn't know about it. And uh, of course, all of that was shattered by World War II. And so obviously, again, that entire story, that narrative is is widely accessible in, in your father's writings. Um, but where did he end up after the war? And, and talk to me about the beginning of his rebuild, rebuilding of his life on this side of the ocean. So after the war, my father went to France with um, a number of other orphans that were all um, evacuated from, from Buchenwald at the time. And he was being cared for by the OSA, which was, it's like a, it's like a relief rights, you know, a relief group for orphanages that, that existed in France at the time. Uh, Orphan Secure, I don't know what the E stands for. Um, and actually, believe it or not, my father's friendship with Ted Comet uh, of the joint started, you know, when he was actually there. Ted had been sent over. He loves telling the story uh, to said, hey, look for my cousin, Eliezer Rizal. He's somewhere with the OSA. And, you know, Ted happened to be the very first guy he met when he walked into one of the buildings was my father. So that was, you know, 1945 already. So a million years ago. 
And you know, from from Paris, my father ultimately became a journalist. He was he traveled around the world. He covered the UN for the Israeli newspapers, which is where he got to meet people like Golda Meir. Um, but he was a journalist, and he was a teacher at City College, and he was doing his best to make ends meet, and that was in New York. What had brought him over to New York? I think as a journalist, as a, as a foreign correspondent, is how he first got to New York. And the amazing thing that I love about how he became a United States citizen, uh, you know, how he, he got to the United States, but how did he come to stay here? He had been on journalist visas back and forth, and he was at risk of missing his visa appointment, or he'd already missed it because he'd been hit by a taxi cab after taking a girl to go see a show on Broadway, and it dragged him for about a block. And he ended up in almost a full body cast for you know weeks at New York Hospital. And when he got out, he was very stressed out. You know, had he missed the appointment, and he went to the customs office to renew the visa once he could finally walk again. And what an amazing moment if you think about you know the problems we've had thinking about immigration collectively, uh, you know, for the, for the last couple of years in this country, the customs officer looked at him and said, you know, you don't have to renew your visa. You could become a citizen. And that's how my father became a citizen. He had no idea that that was even a possible. Never even entered his mind. He'd been a stateless person for so long. The thought that that could change and that there was a country who would even mention the idea of welcoming him had never crossed his mind. Such a powerful vignette and you know really symbolic in so many ways of thinking of him as a larger figure on the on the scene represent representative of a whole generation of people who couldn't imagine such a thing having just been unfortunately it's such the mercy of such tyrants and, and evil people that could be welcomed and invited to join the national conversation so where were you actually born at that point were you born in new york yeah i was born here i was born on uh, har sinai mount sinai hospital and did you grow up your formative years in New York, or at some point, I know you went to Boston. No, I, I didn't. I mean, I spent a summer in Boston, but I grew up. I'm born and raised New Yorker. Uh, I like to say that I'm bicoastal from Manhattanite. I spent ages zero to thirteen on the Upper West Side, and then went to the Upper East Side for ages fourteen to eighteen. You shift all the way across the park. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, I went to you know I went to a modern Orthodox yeshiva here. I went to Shivat Ramaz. Had a great education there. I was a bit of a of a problem kid um, for my parents, for myself, for them. I. Uh, I was so desperate, I think, to find my own way and be my own person and not just be trapped in the shadow of how my father was perceived that uh, I, I got into a lot of trouble. And, um, you know, thank God I ended up all right. You seemed to have straightened out just fine. But I was going to ask you, what was it like kind of growing up in the shadow? And this is true for all people who grow up, whether it's sons of great rabbis, sons of great athletes, actors, any of that. There's always that shadow and there's always that sense. And some people are more sensitive to it are more cognizant of their position in the world and others are less flustered by it was this something that was kind of a weight on your shoulders that you knew you were, you were consciously aware of at all times or you think more subconsciously it was kind of influencing your behavior look i think it, it's all a question of adolescence like when adolescence hit and the chemicals go nuts in the bloodstream and you're seeking to define who you are and there's a social pecking order being established in school because, look, being a social being in a modern, you know, junior high or high school, like, boy, I, I look back at it and I'm just amazed at what my own kids go through and that they survive it and, and do it as well as they do. Because I found it very hard. I found being a modern teenager incredibly difficult, could never seem to figure out all the right social cues to, like, wear the right clothes or say the right things or have all the right cultural references. Didn't help, of course, that my parents were European. My mom is from Vienna. 
And they weren't exactly taking me to baseball games or basketball games. I had to learn all of these modern American cultural norms, uh, really absorb them on the fly. So I had, you know, I definitely had a grudge. Here I was being almost raised as this European kid. I'd been, you know, schlepped all across the world, which obviously is a great thing in many ways, but I'd missed a lot of class for it. And I'd missed a lot of American touchstones for how to grow up. So for me, it was more than just that my father was such a significant Holocaust survivor. It was really this, you know, immigrant versus, you know, someone who felt comfortable in their own skin as a modern American kid. So I, I had a lot to resent. I had a lot of grudges and it was therefore difficult for me. Did the Holocaust itself weigh heavily on you? And there's some kids for whom they internalize it very much. And even if they have it, don't have the direct connections, they just, the, the images, the thoughts, the stories and others, it seems to not be so penetrative. Look, I had anxiety as a kid for sure. And I definitely had teachers who would just quickly dismiss it and say, oh, well, of course, he's a Holocaust survivor, second generation. Um, who knows? Like maybe I just was predisposed to having anxiety at the time. Uh, but that was certainly the the, the view. Look, I didn't spend, you have to realize, I absorbed much of what I know about the Shoah at that age really in a more ambient fashion. There were really very few occasions where my parents would sit me down or my dad would say, this is what happened. This is the story of your family. This is exactly the moment at which your relatives died. He really, I think, tried to spare me. I think he really wanted to shield me from it. He knew that there was a tremendous amount of pressure on me as a 2G, as the only child of his um, and he was the last male heir of his line. I think he he knew what incredible pressure there was going to be on me. And he really did what he could to lessen that pressure for me, which I really appreciated. So what were your early aspirations? I know you were, you know, you said a bit of a uh, troubled teen, perhaps finding your way. But as you started to emerge from childhood, from adolescence, what did you want to do? You know, where, where did you think to go in terms of your own career and your own personal goals? Right. So when I was in high school, I wanted to be a punk rocker. That was like my number one goal. Did you, did you actually play music or? <laughs> I did. Yeah, I played, I played guitar. Um, I actually, you know, I'd been computer programming before and then I put the computer programming aside to make room for guitar. AI sort of was really enjoying it. And I also had a theory it would help me get more girls. Um, I don't know if that actually worked. I'm going to, I was going to say, uh, <laughs> you don't have to tell us if it worked or not. <laughs> um, but by the time, you know, I got to college, I had made the decision I wanted to be pre-law. And, you know, like all great plans, there I am freshman year, I've loaded up my curriculum with all sorts of humanities courses with an eye to doing this. And I remember I was sitting in the uh, computer cluster. I don't know if they still have computer clusters at colleges, but I was sitting in the computer cluster and the guy next to me was having a much better time than I was. It was two in the morning. I was working on my seventh paper and he's just having a blast. And I'm like, what are you doing? He's like, I'm programming. I'm like, you can do that for credit here. And he's like, yeah, there's a whole computer science curriculum. And I was like, whoa. And my mind was just completely, you know, blown away and I decided to pick up programming again. And next thing I knew, I was off on a computer science trajectory, which is what got me into the workforce. And this was, I guess, in the 90s was sort of coming of age yep. and the sort of pre-internet or early internet days. I mean, the internet already existed, but not a lot of people were on it. I mean, maybe DARPA, you know, but uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So it wasn't, it wasn't popular uh, yet and, and in every home ubiquitous. So what did you choose to do with that career? So I wanted to write computer games, and that's what I was doing during my summers. I uh, put in the resume book in big letters, I want to work at a computer game company, and underlined it, like that's what I wanted. And I got a call from a Wall Street firm that I'd never heard of, and I was like, I'm not going to do this. Why would I take that interview, you know, on-campus interview? And my roommate got very angry at me, and he said, you can't do that. Everybody wants that interview. I don't care if you take it or not, but you at least have to go to the interview. 
And I went to the interview and I don't know what I can say. I, I fell in love. Um, and, you know, I ended a 25-year career at Goldman Sachs uh, two years ago. And um, what an incredible environment and what an incredible opportunity to learn. And were you at Goldman the entire time? I was. Yep. I only wow. had one straight job. Out of, for straight out of school. Years. I took a few months. They were kind. They let me take uh, half a year off because I wanted to do Project Marva, which is a it's a very short military training stint Army, in yeah. IDF. Yeah. And it was great. It was three months. I made some lifelong friends there, uh, thought hard about whether to stay because what they do is after it, it's a sufficient enough basic training. You have the option to continue and not repeat it depending on where you're going in the army if you wanted to make Aliyah. And I had to make that decision on the spot. Am I going to make Aliyah and like say that that was my tier and keep going? Or am I going to come back home to this job at Goldman? And I, I ended up coming back to the- What to part York. of your career or your life was that? Was that early in the Golden days or- Very early, first year. Oh, first year they gave you yeah. right away to take off. It was an unusual thing. I, I requested, I said, look, I really want to come work for you guys. I want to see what it's about. But you have to understand, I have this itch. I've got to go scratch. I need to go spend a significant amount of time in Israel. I really want to have this program and see what it's about. And if I want to come back, I hope you'll take me. And they were up for that, strangely enough. Had that been on your radar for a while? Like, did, did you, was Ali Asabi you had been wrestling with? Or had you spent a lot of time in Israel previously? I really, I mean, as a kid, I had, but the, the big change for me was my cousin, Steve, who is my father's sister's son, uh, his sister, Bay, who died sadly of lung cancer in 1973. Um, they'd made Aliyah after she passed, her, her surviving uh, husband, my uncle, Len. And I met him because he came to visit, he came to visit his parents here in the city, my uncle, Len, and my aunt, Leah, who he remarried to. And I got to spend time with him. And all of a sudden, for the first time, you know, all of these things that I hadn't really had at my yeshiva experience, I had a father who was much older. I had a certain experience that I was having in a modern Orthodox yeshiva. But all of a sudden, here was this Zionist version of myself, you know, 12, 13 years older, who'd been in the army for 20 years, was doing all these amazing things, and just really uh, it inspired me. And I decided to go spend some time with him for a few weeks in Israel to check it out. And then I was like, wow, this is... I really get this. I want this to be a part of my life story. What ultimately was determinative in terms of coming back? Like, why did you, why did you make that choice? I don't know. It's a great question. It's definitely one of those moments where I sort of wonder, you know, boy, life would have been so different. Look, I came back. It was at a moment in time where I was just debating, like, where is the challenge? Where am I going to learn the most? Like, where is my life going to sort of take off from here? And, you know, the army, you have to realize it was the height of the peace process you know, when I was doing this. So it wasn't as obvious that there was going to be opportunities for adventure. I don't know. It wasn't as clear to me. It just felt very sort of quiet. I didn't necessarily see what it would be about. Obviously, I felt that there was a real case to be made of doing service no matter what. But the opportunity that I had in the States was a pretty exciting one. And I, uh, I wanted to take it. So you came back, you gave up video games. Did you, yeah. did you continue writing them at all? Did you have any games to, uh, that you did produce? No, unfortunately, I was not able to produce any more games. I still play around and, and make little fun things with my kids sometimes. How about playing games? You into that or that's... Uh... Yeah, I sometimes play games, sure. <laughs> so yeah, they left the video games and went to this, the sober world of Wall Street, um, which it sounds like you didn't know much about. If you, I mean, if you didn't know what Goldman Sachs was beforehand, you probably were not <laughs> very deeply ensconced in the world of finance because any, you know, any freshman who's uh, thinking about going into the financial world, Goldman is kind of the holy grail. So, you know, what did you learn immediately about when you entered the, the world of Wall Street? So I had imagined Wall Street. I don't know if you remember, there was a, a story by Herman Melville called Bartleby the Scrivener. And they did a, 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 like a TV version of it all in black and white, 
And you have, I had this vision of accountants under those little accountant desk lamps in endless corridors of books uh, and just looking like the driest, dullest job you can imagine. And boy, I was just so blown away. Like the, the coolest technology was being developed, the most interesting problems, grappling with tons of data and complexity. It just really, uh, it really stroked an intellectual curiosity itch for me. So what kind of work did you do at Goldman? Was it strictly on the tech side, you know, building their their databases and things like that? Or was it started on the tech side, but it quickly moved into a more markets oriented role. I started at the commodities business of Goldman, Jay Aaron. And I uh, was originally helping to port from one risk management system to the newer one. And then I discovered, wow, I can just do all of these incredible things with this new system. And not only that, there's a business to learn. And I got very insistent about making sure that I was learning how the markets functioned, what do customers want, how do we sell it to them. And I picked up a lot of quantitative knowledge and marketing knowledge and ended up really being one of the senior leaders running that business as a quantitative uh, software person after I'd been there 10 years. I was going to ask because you really didn't, it sounds like didn't come in with the finance knowledge and you're kind of learning this all on the fly at this elite institution, you know, where everyone else has probably, you know, been polishing their resumes since they were, you know, four and going to Wharton and doing all these things to learn that skill set. Did you feel like, you know, you were in this really disadvantaged position and you know, how were you able to catch up like that? Listen, growth comes from discomfort. You know, that, that's always the precursor. And I felt very uncomfortable with everything I didn't know. But I knew what I did know, which was how to program. And I used it as a bartering chip. So I would go to the people who were like, you know, triple PhDs in math. And I'd say, I'll be willing to like look at all your programming processes overnight and make sure they run so you can sleep through the night and not worry about the pager that's going to go off if one of the batch processes fails. But in return, I want you to sit here with me for an hour or two and explain to me how numerical methods work. Teach me backward induction. Teach me the math. Help me make my way through the textbook as I go through all the problem sets. And that was very effective because that was a good trade for both sides. And uh, it was a great learning experience. You're a real trader. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> was Goldman very, very Jewishly influenced? I mean, obviously, the name Goldman Sachs you know, basically tells you, you know, it's like, it sounds like a synagogue, right? Was it heavily influenced by many Jews and in particular, any observant Jews? Well, you have to remember the roots of the businesses that Goldman Sachs and other places like Lehman Brothers were, were into when these firms were created you know, 150 years ago is that these were companies that had to, because they were started by Jewish founders, doing businesses in what was not, you know, it wasn't the IPOs, it wasn't the investment banking, it wasn't the, uh, the white shoe businesses. We were typically excluded from those businesses, so we had to get into the guts of things like lending and commercial paper uh, and ultimately bond trading. That's because we were excluded from other places, and that's where the trading powerhouses were really created because of that. I was not particularly observant for my first couple of decades at Goldman, so I didn't have my radar up for it as much. But there's a minion that's been meeting there for a very long time. And I'll tell you, when I had to say Kaddish for my father when he passed in 2016, there were days where all three of my minyanim during the winter would be at Goldman. There'd be a you know, 6.45 a.m. shacharis, and there'd be a 4.00. 30 Mincha followed right behind it by a 450 Marv um, with a little, you know, short break in the middle for Devar or something like that. And uh, it was incredibly helpful. We had a, we have a safer Torah there. I helped arrange for uh, an RN Kodesh to be set up as a file cabinet in one of the rooms. And uh, it would be a roving minion. We would switch rooms depending on what was free, but uh, it was, it was pretty amazing. And, and what a, what a great gift it was to have that. And thank God it's still going. Do you feel like Goldman's gotten even more Jewish or more supportive of religion over the years just because of the number of 
you know, the growth of the Orthodox community and the number of people entering that force. This was never a Goldman-sanctioned event. Like, don't get me wrong. It's not like there was an official <laughs> GS minion. It's just that there were a number of people who found that it was helpful for there to be a minion, and we were able to get a little space, and we came up with a system by which we'd book conference rooms on a regular basis, and, and the firm accommodated it. It wasn't, uh, but it was never Goldman-sanctioned in some way. Now, you mentioned that in parallel to this, you weren't necessarily, you know, at the peak of your religious fervor uh, for, for the first you know, chunk of time that you were there. So at the same time, you did grow up in this observant home. You went to Ramaz. It spent some time in Israel. So obviously, what had changed for you? And then ultimately, what, what shifted back? I think by the time I graduated high school, I was pretty convinced I wanted nothing to do with religion. I, maybe, I went to Hillel once my entire time at Yale. And that was the very first weekend because my mom and dad were there and my dad wanted to get, <laughs> he wanted kosher food on Friday night. Of course, you know, we, we need somewhere to go for Shabbos. But that was really it. That was the only time uh, I stepped foot into Hillel. I was convinced that secular life was the way I wanted to go, that religion just didn't make sense. These were some beautiful stories, but I didn't believe them. And, and it was a big point of tension between my father and I. He was very disappointed that I didn't get that and that I didn't take that love of, of Yiddishkeit from all the growing up I did. And it was something that really only started changing, I think, much later. A, in part, when I got to, um, there were a couple of key relationships. My Tanakh teacher in Ramaz uh, really helped show me a Shabbos at home that was filled with joy one time that made a big impression, seeing Shabbat as it was celebrated by my cousin in Israel. My parents were European Jews, and they had a, a certain type of Shabbat table, and it was a lovely table, but it was a bit more formal. And for me to see that there was a more informal, joyful way to, to celebrate a Shabbos dinner with people coming in and out and conversations starting and stopping and interruptions for a song in the middle every so often that stops all conversation for a little bit. You know, these things I think slowly left an impression on me. And particularly when I made, you know, as my year of Kaddish came and I started to try many different shuls and I got to see Chabad in particular and how Chabad does Shabbat. And I became close friends with um, Rabbi Shmuley Boteach and I got to see his family and how they enjoy Shabbos. You know, these things made, I think, a big impression on me. And I'd already been moving back because particularly once I got married and had a son and then a, and then a daughter afterwards, all of these things became much more important as I had big questions of what do I want to lay out for my kids. And I decided to really put joy first as the main thing to teach them. Less emphasis on you have to be Jewish because the Shoah happened. Less emphasis on you have to be Jewish because everybody's going to be disappointed with you if you don't. And much more on look at this incredible treasure we have that every week we're getting together on Friday night and we're doing these things and we all walk away sated and, and joyful and engaged with each other. So I don't know. Those are some of my thoughts. I mean, your father himself obviously had a different orientation towards religion than his parents, presumably, right? He, even though he remained very connected and mm -hmm. observant, but he didn't necessarily remain a Hasidic Jew, which of course is completely understandable given the cataclysmic disruptions that he encountered. But did you ever kind of discuss with him that sense of needing to carve out your own path and how he himself had kind of diverged? I wish we'd spoken about it more, but I want to correct one thing. My father absolutely remained a Hasidic Jew the, his entire life. That never disappeared. He just became other things as well. He became a secular Jew. He became a journalist swimming in certain circles and salons. He was many things, but he never lost that, you know, the, the most inner part of him, I'm sure, was, was Hasidish the entire way through. He had a dialogue with God the entire time. You know, even when my father was 
not necessarily um, you know, keeping Taryag Mitzvahs his entire life. He always had a relationship with God and was talking to him and challenging him and arguing. He, he would say one thing to me, and one of our, I remember one thing we would argue about whether or not one needed to keep mitzvahs after the Shoah, etc. He said, if I'm angry with God, why should I take it out on Shabbos? That's that powerful. You know, in your, in your own development, do you feel like you were rebelling against your upbringing from a intellectual posture? Like you had questions and, and things that you couldn't square? Not necessarily even, you know, good and evil and, and theodicy per se, but just, as you mentioned earlier, kind of the, the, the stories and, or was it really just a, more of a function of experiencing Judaism in a more joyous and uplifting way? And when you finally were able to encounter it in a, in a different fashion, that was enough to reignite that spark? Yes. <laughs> the latter. <laughs> no, all of it. I mean, you know, I... I I, I had real intellectual issues and, 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 of course, you know, continue to have questions, you know, like the relationship that I felt I'd been taught to have with God as a very young person, this thought that if I sat there and poured my heart out to God every night with what I wanted, what I needed, that there was truly some king on a throne listening word to word and taking notes and then intervening directly in my life. That was a very childlike appreciation that I'd had, you know, in the years before my bar mitzvah. And at some point around like 10, 11, 12, 13, as like my world just got bigger and I saw more of the secular world and more ideas, it just started to feel like a little bit more quaint and I had trouble identifying with that way of direct communication with a divine being. And by the time I'm 14, 15, I'm like, none of this makes sense. Like this is, you know, if I'm really supposed to be speaking to God, well, where is God? You know, like I can't see him or smell him. So, so what is this? And I had this very like cold, secular view on it. Not that I couldn't appreciate the concept that we had a tradition with some amazing stories that would, you know, stimulate my mind and stimulate my heart, but the thought of there of, of of a faith-based thing being worth keeping, I looked at it with a very jaundiced eye. Uh, you know, I was I was perfectly set to go to a liberal arts college because I had this view of the world of, you know, is religion the cause of war? Why should I defend religion when religion causes war? And am I just part of that? All the tribalism. Wouldn't it be better if we were just all one people? You know, a lot of very idealistic thoughts, and it's not unnatural. These are these are the sorts of things that one can question and think about, particularly in this Western world, as one comes of age. So you mentioned, you know, some of the experiences that you had that maybe gave you a different perspective on Jewish living. But were there any thinkers that you were able to hear from or read or converse with who helped reorient you in terms of some of these intellectual issues? It's a good question. I think the thing that I remember the most, I don't know about so much on the spiritual side, but, you know, like by ninth grade, I think I was already, I was prepped to be a budding little communist, like, you know, down with money, money's evil, greed. And then a friend turned me on to um, Arthur Kessler's Darkness at Noon. And that book had a profound impact on me in ninth grade. First of all, it was like such an important seeming book. I was like so proud to be reading it. And then as I went through it and I saw like this is the consequences of communism, that you can have this total control, I became more open to free markets, I think, as I progressed. So I don't know if it's 100% related, but I suspect that like atheism and communism go together really well. They're just very complementary flavors. So it might be that my return to capitalism a little bit presaged uh, a willingness to return to, uh, to a spiritual life as well. Well, you certainly swam in the deep waters of capitalism <laughs> and, and Goldman Sachs was the patron saint of all capitalist institutions. <laughs> so how did your time at Goldman evolve? What did you become over the 25 years? Obviously, you started to learn the finance end of the business, 
you started rising up and having more, you know, managerial experience. Where did your career take you ultimately? And, and what were some of the, the signature achievements uh, in, in that latter part of the career? Look, my, my career took me through some amazing stories. I mean, you know, I was in commodities exclusively for the first 10 years of my career. And I remember everything from uh, Enron to the collapse in gold prices to, you know, there were just so many different situations that were brewing. Uh, I went into the fixed income markets after my first 10 year stint and started to get more comfortable with corporate credit. This was the time where CDOs were being formed. You know, we had a couple of clients who were starting to see the crack in the armor and thinking that the world might not be so good at some point. And we were looking at credit default swaps. And then I just remember there was one day in, I think it was February of 2007. I think it was the day Countrywide announced they were having some problems. And uh, the person who'd been running the mortgage analytics team was no longer in place. And they said, well, you just go look in on our mortgage business and see if you can figure out, you know, what do we actually own? And, and what should our risk be? And like, how should we think about all these things? And that was the day Countrywide announced they were having problems. And then I was just in for a year and a half ride where I was working on the mortgage desk for, you know, during the financial crisis, just front row, really just running at top speed with an incredible team who were desperately, desperately trying to modernize and figure out what we had so that we could keep our heads above water. It was a, a fascinating experience. And, and after that, I was, I was responsible for risk management for our entire trading division for about seven years. And then my last post was chief information officer of the firm responsible for all engineering. And, uh, and that was it. That took me through 25 years. And was that really a pivot back to the more hard, a little bit, a bit more of like a real return to my roots, like hard yeah. technical issues, but also the pinnacle of, of a lot of managerial work, like really thinking about this was, I mean, one out of every four people at the time was an engineer at Goldman. So we're talking 10,000 people. It was sort of at a scale that I just never even thought I'd ever have to operate before. And you learn a lot about what do you do when you only have so many hours in the day and yet you have so many responsibilities? How do you delegate? How do you articulate your messages in a way that inspire and are crisp so that people know what you expect of them? And how are you efficient with time yet also keenly sensitive and aware of everybody in your orbit and what their needs are and, and their opportunities are? So it was it was an incredible adventure overall. High, highly recommend a career. Highly recommend like to all anybody, those to anybody like... considering it. <laughs> That's right. Well, you know, obviously we don't have time for a master class in uh, leadership or management, but were there one or two nuggets that you felt were sort of the foundational principles of whether you're managing five people or ten thousand people? You know, what what really carried you through? Like you said, it's a much longer conversation. I'll give you two particular things. The first is you have to figure out what puts the fire in your belly and what does it take to motive, really motivate you and just get you to burn that midnight oil? For me, I discovered that the thing that gets me to work absolutely crazier and harder than anything is when somebody tells me I can't do something. And I'll never forget, it was my second year at Goldman and one of these big math PhDs came up to me and they said, why are you even bothering? You don't have any of this background in math. Just, just go program the things I tell you to program and I'll tell you the math. And for me, and, and by the way, this came from a German guy. Um, so you can imagine <laughs> oh, it was even double, right? So like, oh, baby. <laughs> like the, the, it was like flashing red before the bull. And that's when I really doubled down and spent the next six months. Just I was like, if it was the last thing I did, I was going to prove this guy wrong. And I did, obviously. So that's number one is like, you know, but not everybody's that way. For me, when somebody tells me I can't do something. So it's, by the way, it's also a weakness because if people know that about you. I was going to say, you're you to overreact. <laughs> yeah, but like, but you have to, but, but that sort of self-knowledge to be aware of what is that button that you can choose to push or that you can expose or not, 
is very profound. And then the only thing is I'll say time management, respect for time is something that I found, you know, I wanted to make a brand for myself. And it wasn't immediately in my career. It was something that I only realized when in one of my jobs, I began dealing more and more with our CFO at the time, David Vineyard, who was a guy I just respected unbelievably. And he ran his meetings. He had, the, I think, the most important job at the firm. And he ran his meetings like clockwork. If you didn't get there on time, you were late. And the meeting would start on time. It would end on time. He had a structured way for how he was going to spend the time. He knew what he wanted out of it. And I was just so amazed at the scale he was able to do. And also, I felt it really conveyed real respect for everybody he worked with. And I had worked with bosses while I was at Goldman who were the exact opposite, who would make you wait for 60, 70 minutes outside their desk while you know all sorts of other things were going on. So I just decided that respect for time, my time and other people, that was going to become a, a real brand for me. Did you ever find, though, that that focus, which I understand respecting people and you know not making them wait, but at the same time, that fidelity to exact timing, talking about Germans, right? Yeah. Did, did you ever feel that would stifle authentic human connection because everyone knows you're on the clock, you've got seven minutes, you've got, you know, that kind of a uh, pressure? No, I mean, look, if you schedule every single minute of the day that it's going to happen, but I mean, respect for time also means not overscheduling yourself and leaving plenty of time for the just cruising around the trading desk and the schmooze and hey, how are you doing? Unstructured time is one of the most valuable things you can have, but unstructured time can be valuable in its unstructuredness only if your structured time is valuable in its structuredness. If you have unstructured activities going on in your structured time, then it's a mess because you won't get done what you needed to do in that structured moment. And you won't be able to really enjoy and be free in the time that you've left to be unstructured. So you have to, you have, to have a little havdalah here. You have to say like, you know, this is the time that you're going to get certain things done and there's going to be outcomes and it starts and ends on time. And then the rest of it, let the brain roam free. Let the mind roam free and discover new things. There's a pitch for structured unstructuredness. There yes. you go. <laughs> I would be remiss if I didn't go back for a minute and just ask you about 2008, 2007, because you had such a front row seat. And you mentioned as well earlier, kind of your shift from the uh, idealist, ninth grade, 10th grader, budding communist to ultimately the, uh, the reformed capitalist. Did this experience in 08 put a damper on any of that and, you know, like a wet blanket on your love of capitalism? Listen, the, the truth is we don't live in a purely capitalist society. I mean, you know, modern democracies are both capitalist, but also socialist. And, and I, I think that there are certain elements where you do need both, right? It's just communism is a complete extreme. Ayn Rand capitalism is probably like another extreme. And the truth is, you know, just if you look at the tax rate, the tax rate is arguably a proxy for how socialist or communist are we at any moment. And for anybody who, you know, advocates 100% capitalism, you know, I would just observe, oh, really? So like, who's going to pave the roads? I mean, like we all use them. Streetlights, like you have to remember, there are certain services all citizens consume, and we have a vested interest in it. And obviously, the, the modern political debate, as it has been for hundreds of years, is just how far does that obligation go? How much should be picked up by government and how much should be picked up by private enterprise? And that's a rich, thriving debate that will go on for many hundred more years, God willing. So why did you ultimately decide to leave Goldman? You'd been there a long time, of course. What was the was there a precipitating event? Uh, there was. First of all, there was a real uh, changing of the guard. I had already been thinking I was, you know, near the end, and I was fortunate enough to be able to retire. And when was the right time? And as these things work, often investment banks 
like many large companies, are, can be run in a tribal fashion. And there are different tribes, there are different pods of people who band together and careers are often made together and careers, you know, will end together. And I was part of the trading tribe. I was part of a group of, I mentioned I'd started in J. Aaron and the CEO of the company for much of my time there was Lloyd Blankfein, who also came from J. Aaron. And there was sort of a whole tribe and there was, it was a moment in time where there was a changing of the guard. The traders were ceding the keys for upper management to the banking tribe. Which was the David Solomon which is the David Solomon tribe. And by the way, I should be very clear, like David's a great leader. Um, I, I have a lot of respect for him. I'm very close to, I had a co-CIO named George Lee, who, who was from banking that I was twinned with for the last year that I was there. And, you know, they're going to do a great job and they're going to do it in their way. And um, it was it was the right time for me to pop. And I was particularly excited because the thing I did right after I left, I think I left Goldman right smack at the end of December, and already the first week of January, I was working on Michael Bloomberg's presidential campaign, rolling up my sleeves, learning how to do data science again. You know, how are we going to like, you know, take all this information about voter patterns and what are we going to do with it? And just having a blast, like going from managing 10,000 people to like being again part of a pot of four or five people, just figuring stuff out from scratch it was hugely rewarding. Obviously, the, uh, the campaign blew up, but it was an incredible three months and a great way to change my brainwaves as I exited Wall Street. Did you know well before that, that that was your next destination? or was I didn't. I wasn't sure what I was going to do next. I had like a million things I want to do. But then like when Mike threw his hat in the ring, you know, whatever it was that November or December, I'm like, this, this is it. And I just became an immediate nuisance to the campaign, you know, going through every uh, avenue I could to, to get in there. I guess you had a previous relationship with him. No, not really. I mean, my, my parents knew him. I didn't really have a direct one. We'd met maybe once or twice. Um, but, you know, with with persistence, many things are possible. <laughs> so what what did you ultimately decide to do? I mean, you talked about so many possibilities, which I'm sure are endless. And really, the world is this blank canvas at this point. You're able to throw your hat into any ring that you want. What were you passionate about? What was the thing that someone said you can't do that you <laughs> were going to do next? <laughs> That's a great question. So... Part of it is I felt that a number of people said, yeah, you know, working at an established firm is easy. Try doing a startup. Nobody actually said that to me explicitly, but it was in the back of my mind. You're, you're riding on the shoulders of... Correct. You know, and one, but one or two other friends said, hey, when are you going to like do your own thing? So I decided to, rather than just start my own company, that I would start advising companies in return for equity. And I found one or two companies that I really enjoy working with, where I felt I could add significant value. And I, in one case, I came in as a chair of the board, and in another, I came in as a, as a founding advisor. And in each case, you know, spending a decent amount of time each week, really watching the formation of a business from scratch and getting to shepherd it, helping to use my network, helping to use the things I've learned, uh, occasionally putting my hands on a keyboard, even in programming something. And uh, I must say, it's really been fun, but I, I wanted to cap it at a certain amount of time because I wanted to leave time in life to also really spend time with my family and do fun things with them. You know, and I'll give you an example. I took an EMT course with my son last summer uh, and it was amazing. You know, he, he was 16. We had a five-week crash course and now we're both, you know, certified emergency medical technicians qualified to ride an ambulance and provide first aid and transport. Have you been taking calls? No, not yet. Although I'm, I'm also applying for ski patrol where hopefully when I pass that, I will be taking calls, oh but goodness. I'm getting like the chance to like develop emergency medicine was never something I could even contemplate because of the time commitment. And I'm loving that. Uh, I wanted to leave time to do a little Duff Yomi every day. I started the most recent Duff Yomi cycle. And you know, that, that adds up, that takes time every day, depending on, on how deep you want to go. 
you have a favorite cheer you listen to or uh, you do it on your no, own? No, I do. I study in Havrusa with, with a friend um, and, and sometimes on my own. And uh, I got to say the last three Masakhtot have been just unbelievably amazing. Yeah, much easier than some of the... <laughs> and we're coming up on a tough one, so... Ta'anita Migila and Chagi so far have all been great. Wait for your vamos, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's what, I, that's what I've heard. And uh, look, I'm also trying to figure out what to do with my father's foundation. My father and mother have the Elie Wiesel Foundation. I've recently stepped in as chair to that just a few months ago. And I'm in the process of redesigning that and figuring out what footprint I want that to have. So my, my plate is very full, but with a nice diverse set of activities for now. At some point, I may want to go back to full-time work. For now, I don't think so. Talking about the foundation for a minute, it was publicly documented that the foundation suffered greatly from the Madoff scandal. And again, you were right in the middle of Wall Street when all that went down. So you must have had, again, a bird's eye view of all of it. How did that impact the family? And where's the foundation now? Well, the sense of betrayal was obviously immense. Um, you know, my parents had trusted them and it's a great lesson to me. I had made a decision that I just, I didn't have the time to spend on being the treasurer for the foundation. I just, and I was just like, look, asking, I was basically washing my hands up and saying, I just, I can't do this. I'm conflicted. I'm just too distracted. And it was a real mistake. If you're part of a family that has a foundation, somehow I, I should have made the time. I don't know from where. You feel like you would have spotted the irregularities? Who knows? But like it definitely, it, des- it definitely deserved the time and, and a real set of eyes. And, but thank God, you know, the foundation's uh, coffers were restored. The recovery that, you know, Picard in particular brought about, I thought was just exceptional work really should go down in the history of, you know, forensics and, and restorative finance is just an unbelievable accomplishment. So the foundation is, is up, it's running, we have our, we have our funds, and we're, um, you know, we're, we're figuring out how to pivot, though, in the sense of my father was very into having conferences with Nobel laureates. My mother was directly involved with Ethiopian Jews in Israel. And we're now sort of figuring out what do we want the foundation to look like for the next 10 years or so? How do we want to spend the money that we have? What do we want the brand to be? What do we want the impact to be? And it's a, it's a great project. When it comes to that kind of a decision-making process, are you kind of a strict constitutionalist or more of a living constitution person? Meaning, do you think, what would my dad have wanted? Or is it, okay, they had their run, they did amazing things, and now it's time for the next generation to establish new priorities? Well, the good news is my mom's here. So I can still run things by her. And if I don't, I, I certainly catch hell for it. <laughs> but, you know, my, my thinking is that right now, you know, the pivot, ha- I thought that for this year, and I have to think carefully about like, you know, what the world looks like, obviously, with everything that's going on in the Ukraine, because it's going to be so hard to keep focus. But I felt that the Uyghurs were really the big story, you know, this year. The th- and I thought about all the causes that my father would have been engaged in and the thought that there's a million Muslims and there really is no other word. They are in concentration camps. It's forced labor. They're not death camps. We have to be very specific on language. It's, it's not the Shoah. It's not Auschwitz. But It's internment camps, yeah. They're internment camps, for sure. And, and people are being held there, and families are being separated, and there's a lot of, uh, you know, you can have thought crimes to land you in these places. It just felt like the sort of thing that we shouldn't be tolerating today. And, you know, maybe we tolerate it because China's a big bully, and they're, and they're huge, and nobody wants to mess with China. But nonetheless, it still feels like I, I look back and I, I look at the Soviet Jewry movement and wow, look at, look at the odds there. Who would have ever thought that all of these you know, great leaders of my father's generation, and there were so many who got together with Natan Sharansky and others to bring about the release of Soviet Jews against the evil empire at the time, who would have thought that it would be as successful as it was? 
And I actually believe that the success of Soviet Jewry was the first chink in the armor in many ways um, of the larger Soviet apparatus. So who knows, maybe maybe the Uyghurs are the human rights issue that is the that is the leading issue on challenging China to be better. As we start to wrap up, I want to ask about the solidarity rally that you planned and executed this past year. But I want to ask it in the context of a broader discussion about your involvement with community affairs. You know, you've been, again, you've had your own Jewish journey uh, with, with, with its peaks and valleys, but you've always been obviously deeply connected to the Jewish community. Were you involved on a communal level in activism, in charity, in any kind of causes or organizations throughout your career? Or were you just consumed by that career at Goldman? And what then led you to try to get involved in the community? Sure. No, I was definitely active in public service while I was while I was at Goldman. In particular, I had joined a very young startup in the nonprofit space called Groundwork back in 2002, I believe. And Groundwork was like a baby little offering in East New York, offering youth development services to, to troubled kids who are really growing up in a very tough neighborhood. It would be summer school, after school programming. And it was run by actually someone who's become a good friend of mine. Uh, we stayed friends all those years, Richard Bury, who now runs Robinhood, which is the single biggest um, you know, provider of, of services uh, as a nonprofit here in New York. Um, so, so he's had an incredible career from there. But when we got together in Groundwork, it was just fighting year by year to get the budget in place, get the city to give us the permits we needed. And ultimately, when Groundwork was acquired by Good Shepherd Services and my friend there, Sister Paulette Lamonico, which is, again, one of these big agencies that provide services to city kids, uh, I started a, a really cool thing. Um, I rebooted something called Midnight Madness, which is an all-night puzzle-solving contest. And it was something that a bunch of college kids had been running. It was based on a movie that had Michael J. Fox in it in the 1980s. And it's like a scavenger hunt, but you're solving these crazy puzzles that don't come with instructions. You have to deduce what the instructions are. And I had this idea that you could reboot this fun event into a charity event that could raise millions for Good Shepherd Services. And over a three-year period, I ran three of them. They last all night. They go from 8 p.m. on a Saturday night off until 2 p.m. on a Sunday. They take you all over the city into nooks and crannies that you never knew existed because me and my team would go find them and construct puzzles there. And uh, we raised about $7.5 million over three years for charity doing that. So I had some experience with charitable organizing. But... Jewish communal service is absolutely a new thing for me. I don't want to be, my father coached me once in life. He's like, don't become a rabbi and don't become a Jewish communal leader. He's like, it's way too much grief. I don't want that for you. Um, everybody brings you their problems. And, um, you know, I, I took his advice, but I, I got to say last May when bombs were falling on Israel and the world was seemingly attacking Israel for defending itself, I just reached a critical point of frustration, and I went around to some of the Jewish communal leaders that I knew, and I said, where are the rallies? Where is the anger? Where, is, where are Jews getting out on the streets to say, this is unacceptable, we stand with Israel, and anti-Semitism is as unacceptable if it's happening in the form of violence in Israel as it is here on our shores, and it was happening on our shores. You know, people were getting beaten up in LA restaurants, uh, they were being thrown to the ground on Times Square. I saw it with my own eyes, and I, I really felt that there needed to be a response, and there wasn't one. There were some, but there weren't enough. There wasn't the scale that I felt should be happening. So, you know, I tried to put something together, and um, I'm, I'm proud of what we tried to accomplish. I'm proud of the things that we, that we did. We had on the same stage, and, and I know we're short on time, so I'll wrap up here, but 
On the same stage, we had a young man who described how he was attacked and then quoted Menachem Begin as he announced that he was going to go join the IDF the next week, followed by my friend Rabbi David Saperstein, who got up and used the word occupation on stage. And I'm sure both of those things irritated certain Jews in the crowd, depending on where you stood in the political spectrum on Israel. And nonetheless, we created a stage where both of those ideas could be broadcast, but both of those people were there as part of a spirit that, you know, we can have achdus amidst all of that. So I'm proud of what we achieved, even if we didn't get the numbers or, uh, you know, our impact we wanted. And what did you feel about? Were you happy with the results or did you feel ultimately just the establishment didn't get behind it enough to make it this massive turnout? It was one of those things where like we hit a turning point where once I got a certain critical mass and there were a number of organizations, people who'd been fighting didn't want to be left out, but then they were like kind of coming in too late almost. So I just, I learned a lot about what's required to do this and I'm glad it's not my full-time job and I'm thrilled that the AJC has, uh, has Ted Deutsch coming in. What a great, great choice for them. Like that's going to be amazing. And you know, I'm, I'm thrilled to see that the changing of the guard is moving on at the conference of presidents and you know, we're going to get this incredible leadership from William Daroff. There are incredible people out there. They're going to do a much better job than I ever could. There was just this one moment in time where we seemed stuck, and I felt like better for me to try to do something than to sit there and let nothing happen at all. What's next for you, Alicia? What projects? Obviously, you're dabbling, you're exploring, you're doing startups, you're you know, doing uh, puzzles and uh, <laughs> or EMTing and all these different, different things. There, is there something out there It's like the great unexamined arena that you'd like to dive into that comes to your mind now? Watch the space. You'll find out. Watch yeah. this space. We're going to find we'll out. We got to follow. We got to follow. <laughs> <laughs> follow the story, the part two of the podcast, I guess. Well, Alicia Wazell, thank you so much for sharing uh, your incredible story. I mean, you've done so many different things. And again, I think often people, you know, grow up in the, again, in the shadows of great people, great men, great women. And it's very difficult for them to carve out that niche for themselves. And you really have done that in, in your own remarkable ways, both in the world of finance, and public service, and uh, your own Jewish journey. So it's, it's really inspiring to see that wherever a person's coming from, they can use every morsel of talent and uh, ability at their disposal and marshal it for greatness. So thank you for, for sharing that journey with us. Thank you so much. And thank you for sharing your time. And I'm going to have to listen to some of your other podcasts because you're a great interviewer. I appreciate it. Have a wonderful day. Thank you. Take care. Be well. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at JewsYouShouldKnow. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash JewsYouShouldKnow. Finally, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.